Welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that celebrates all things related to sustainability, hosted by Rebecca and Ellie of Cornerstone Asset Management. This episode, we're talking to Pete Ritchie, Executive Director at Nourish Scotland, a charity focusing on food policy and practice. Nourish are doing some really important work at the minute, getting food and food systems onto the agenda at COP26 in November. We've wanted an episode on food since the beginning of this podcast, so it was really great to chat to Pete about the interaction between food and climate. Pete also runs Whitmuir Organic Farm with his family, and you may hear some authentic farm noises in the background. We've done our best to edit this for you, but we couldn't completely remove Lucy the dog. Uh, As you know, we try to go for a gender balance of guests on this programme, so Lucy is our female representative for this episode. Food system to be really what you call. <laughs> Our four words for the forward thinking nourishing the way to COP26 episode are food, farm, footprint, and focus. Thank you very much, Pete, for joining us this morning. Um, could we start with um, if you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Nourish Scotland as well? Sure. So I'm Pete Ritchie, and I've been working for Nourish Scotland for about eight years. Nourish Scotland is obviously a Scottish-based organisation, and we're trying to change the way that food works in Scotland so that everybody can afford a diet that's healthy, that they actually enjoy eating, that's sustainable in terms of looking after the planet, looking after the animals, and looking after nature, and that people who work in, in the food sector can have decent jobs and good livelihoods. And that sounds like pretty obvious, would never really want that. But the food system's a bit like an, you know, it's a bit like an elephant. So some people go, oh, well, what we really need to focus on is this. We need to stop people eating biscuits or we really need to focus on, we need to stop spraying things with pesticides or we need to focus on fair trade or we need to focus on looking after animals properly. And all of these bits are just connected, that's all. Because if you, we've got a, a way we do food at the moment that's evolved over the years to be in a certain model and we need to change it to a new model that's much more based on people and planet. But actually getting from A to B is really complicated because we know how to do what we're doing now and we don't really know how to do the thing that's different and it's going to mean values have to change and prices can't change till values change and i think it's that thing about we have to rethink as a society what it is that's really important about food and how we get to organize things so that we get more of that and less of the bad stuff that's what we do fantastic so there's a lot of work ahead of us a lot of work yeah <laughs> A good few years work, you know. <laughs> good. I mean, I was thinking this morning, it's actually quite timely. Um, I don't know, you might not have seen it yet, but there was a new um, a new documentary on Netflix with David Attenborough called Breaking Boundaries about all the scientific research behind the planetary boundaries. And one of the, yeah. and also how we can get back to, to a, a safe and healthy planet. And yeah. um, one of the things they were talking about was food systems and, and how we eat and how we can do so in a way that can sustain, sustain the whole planet. Yeah. I mean, I think at the minute we have more than enough food. It's just doing it in the right way and keeping that going. Um, yeah. So obviously the big question of, uh, of the moment is now, is it better to eat vegan and vegetarian? Is that better for the planet or, or is that an oversimplification? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not okay. vegan or vegetarian. Yeah. Rebecca's no, no. vegetarian. I'm very much a meat eater. We try and source it responsibly. But, um, no, no. Interesting no, question. I think <laughs> it's absolutely right. You know, one of the big um, challenges for climate change, and particularly for nature, is how much of the whole planet we're using to produce meat. 
you know, we're using a lot of resources to produce meat. And the, the reason for that is that, as you said before, we can produce as much food as we need. But actually, what you're always trying to do, the way the system works is we're always trying to add value to food in some way. You know, so whether that's, you know, making something into ready meals or making something, you know, when people go out for a meal, you're adding value to it because you get them to sit down and you're doing the washing up and all that. So, you're, you know, we're constantly trying to add value to food because that's where the money's to be made. That's where the jobs are to be made. And in a sense, with, with meat, part of the issue is because we've got so good at producing cereals, you know, we can produce cereals very cheaply. But when you feed them to animals, you get a product which is worth more than the cereals you put into them, even though you waste a lot of the protein and the calories that were in the original cereals that you started with to get them through the chicken or through the pig or whatever it is that you do. So the way the economics works is it makes sense to do that. Uh, we've got really good at doing that. You know, it's not great for the animals. It's really not great for the animals because we've, we've learned how to put them in very small sheds with a lot of them and use enough drugs and ventilation and heating to stop them all dying and to produce meat very, very cheaply. But we've got to understand that it's only cheap in monetary terms because we're actually wasting most of the calories and most of the protein that we started with that we could have eaten, you know, to get our meat out of it. But, but the way the market works is, you know, there's a, you know, we can keep making, yeah, we can keep making demand for that. And I mean, chicken's the greatest thing where, I mean, I'm very old now, but when I was growing up, I mean, you just didn't eat chicken all that often. And it was quite expensive and it was something which was a bit of a treat. And we weren't, you know, we were quite well off, but I mean, it still wasn't something you ate all that often because it was, it, it was quite a treat. And now it's something you just get every day. You can get chicken sandwiches, you know, when you go out for lunch, you know, if you get something for, for lunch, you think, wow, you know, it's become cheaper than chips, you know, and that's yeah. a real problem. So it's almost um, become too common. So it's maybe not yeah. not eating meat that's the problem, but being careful with what meat you're eating and where it comes from. I think I think basically, if you know, we eat about seventy kilos a year on average in Scotland. Globally, we eat about forty kilograms a year on average. You know, we need to bring those numbers down collectively. We need to cut down the amount of meat we eat in the world. Mm-hmm. But we've just got to remember at the same time, there's parts of the world, obviously, with kids growing up who don't actually have enough protein. You know, they're growing up with protein deficiency. So so those kids need some milk or some eggs or, you know, um, maybe you can get it from lentils too, but they need some protein, you know, and sometimes animal protein is the best source for growing kids. So it's not saying all meat is terrible. It's just saying if we carry on producing the amount of meat that we produce at the moment, it's going to be very, very hard to hit our climate targets, but it's also going to be very, very hard to restore nature in the way that we need to do. You know, we need to get, you know, more species, more diversity. You know, we need to just get our rivers back. We need to sort of dial it back on the way that we've gone into the world Mm. and basically taken what we want. You know, we need to get back to nature. And we're very keen, this idea that you move back from the idea of sustainability to actually an idea of reciprocity. It's not just can the planet sustain us, it's, how should we give back to the planet? So it's a give and take thing. That's the first, first time that word reciprocity has come up on the podcast, that idea of giving something back. You know, we've talked about these issues in other forms a lot, but that's the first time anyone's mentioned we should give back. Yeah, that's a great idea. I like that. It, it's, it's not from me. It's from a lovely author, and I'll get her name wrong. 
but it's Robin mm-hmm. Wall Kummerer, um, who's a, okay. a Native American author who just writes beautifully about these things. Um, and I just that sort of respect for nature that we do get, you know, we do get terribly detached from, and our food's a really good example of that because we, you know, by the time it arrives for most of us in the, in the supermarket, it's a long way from what it used to look like, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, where it actually came from. I did, I did pie, I'm, I'm going to confess to this, which is something I shouldn't do as the director of Nourish, but, and it was, it was, I have to say this, Ellie, it was for you and not for me, right? Um, but I did buy, I did buy a packet of Doritos in the supermarket, you know? And, um, and in the days when you still could talk to people on the checkout in the old days, and uh, yeah. I said something like, yeah, I know it's not very healthy, is it? And she said, oh yeah, but maize, that's one of your five a day, you know? And I said, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> wow. I think we've all, we're all going to have confessions to make today yeah. about, you know, yeah. things that we eat that we shouldn't, to be honest. You know, none yeah. of us are perfect. You know, yeah. that's the trouble. But Well, that's right. And we, and we have to have a conversation which isn't about finger pointing. You know, it has to be about saying, yeah, mm. you know, if we can collectively make an effort to do stuff, um, that's good. And we need to, you know, we need to, it's not just about changing individual behavior. Obviously, we need to change things upstream as well and change the way that the, you know, the way that we price things so that it becomes more affordable to do the right thing. And that, you know, and, and we can intervene in markets. We've intervened in markets, you know, for centuries now and, and say we want more of this to happen and less of that to happen. And mm-hmm. as Olivia de Scooter said, you know, any society which where it's cheaper to eat foods that are not good for you and not good for the planet has got its pricing mechanisms wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what we need mm-hmm. to address. You know, we tried to do it with, with tobacco, we tried to do it with alcohol to sort of say, look, can we use use pricing mechanisms to to change demand for these things? And then can we use regulation to change demand for these things? You know? And um, yeah, it absolutely depends what you can afford. And mm. it, you know, but suppose where nourish starts from, we start from a very clear place about the right to food. So you know, we just think if it's, a you know, for 150 years now, we've had the right to education. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're not rich, you know, your kids can go to school, you know, and they go, you know, by and large, the same school and get the same teaching. You know, we now have the right to university education. We have the right to healthcare. You know, you don't have to pay to go to the doctor. You don't even have to pay for your prescriptions. But... With food, what we've done is said, well, depending on how much money you've got, that'll determine how good your diet is. That's what decides how good your diet is. So if you look in Scotland, people on in the highest 20% incomes will eat at least one more portion of fruit and veg a day than the people in the lowest 20%. And that's because calorie for calorie, it's much cheaper not to eat fruit and veg, but it's fruit and veg that keeps you well. And we're not trying to say you should do this or you shouldn't do that. But what we are trying to say is that we need to organise things so that everybody can afford to eat mm-hmm. a you have access sustainable to diet, it. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that, you know, if, if you can afford to and you choose not to, okay, but you shouldn't be forced to eat a diet that's not what you'd really like to eat simply yeah. because of your income. Because as you said first, early, there's more than enough food to go around in the world. It's not like, you know, we can't produce enough food for a healthy diet for everybody. We can you know, we just need to change the way that the market operates. So that's what happens. 
So Pete, um, how much control can farmers have over their output and pricing if they have to sell via the supermarkets? You know, what a lot of farmers have been trying to do more recently, as you know, is to sort of try and cut out the middleman and, and sort of go, well, I'm going to produce, but I'm going to sell directly to customers. And that's fine for a certain scale of farm. You know, so, so someone like Whitmere at home, it's fine mm-hmm. to say everything we produce on the farm, we can sell directly to customers, but that's, we're a small farm. If you've got a thousand tons of potatoes, that's really quite hard to find customers for those. You know? So, you know, if you've got 20 tons, you can do it. But a thousand tons, you know, that's really, really tricky. And, and that's the sort of scale on which, you know, that, that's quite small in farming terms. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, I guess that's the advent of the food boxes over lockdown. And even my husband yeah. and I got our boxes from Whitmuir. That was actually one of the highlights of lockdown. I think it even played into our, our blog, didn't it, Rebecca? Because we got these in yeah. the mm-hmm. in the broccoli. We got some little caterpillars. <laughs> so yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago. But we <laughs> we kept these little caterpillars. And then um, obviously, yeah, oh, I think they sorry, were just yeah. cabbage whites or something. Yeah. Um, it was, it was know, so much fun in the middle day, of lockdown. Uh, the butterflies <laughs> in Ellis Broccoli, they were quite yeah. an event when there was nothing else going on in the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our regular updates on how my how my caterpillars are doing <laughs> as as a far, as a farmer you know in the in the farming community somebody's out there in the countryside working on the land then you know is climate change and the effects of climate change it kind of staring in the face more perhaps than than somebody who's working in an office looking at a computer all day um i heard from somebody in the investment world actually who spends time hanging around in in jungles with indigenous tribes when they go on holiday and things like that, that that some of these people who are out there in the jungle who've been living the same life in the same place for years and years, that they have seen signs, you know, whether it's in the trees or the birds and the wildlife, that there is significant impact of climate change already. And, you know, they're asking us in the Western world to explain why this is happening because they don't have the internet and things like that. Um, I mean, do you, do you see physical signs of it? Out on your land or you know is the community as a whole kind of having to address the effects of it or yeah I think I mean if you look at the temperature record in Scotland over the last 30-40 years you know the seasons have been getting longer and uh, the wet bits have been getting wetter you know and to some extent the dry bits have been getting dry I mean it is I'm not saying it's never a problem in Scotland we we've got private water supply on the farm so we don't tend to use like when we have the polytons, we don't use main irrigation, we use private water. And, you know, we built a pond because the water was starting to be much, you know, we'd, you'd have more periods when between the cows and the polytons, you didn't have enough water, um, even on our farm. So so certainly it has changed. Season to season, it's really hard to know, isn't it? You know, we had the Beast of the East a couple of years ago, which was, which was shocking. But then, you know, back in 2010, we had a terrible winter. In 2012, we had that really hot, dry summer. In 2006, we had a ridiculously good summer. You know, it's like, so you sort of get years that you remember that were exceptional. And I think you're right. It's something, I'm not saying it's something that's not important in Scotland, but we do have a lot more infrastructure and capacity to deal with that. You know, we we can shift water around if necessary. You know, we can bring our cows inside if necessary. We can maybe go out and re-sow if necessary. But if you're a small farmer, we've been talking to people in, in different parts of Africa where they get one shot at sowing because they can only afford one lot of seeds. And if they sow the, the time they've always sown and the rains don't come, what are they supposed to do? You know, mm. so it, it's 
it's a risk we have to deal with in Scotland and it's something we have to adapt to. And we, you know, I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just saying we have the capacity to adapt to that in a way which you know, a smallholder in another part of the world with disruptive events just can't adapt to, you know, and that's, yeah. you know, why we've seen so many people having to leave their land and, and move to cities and, and part of the disruption globally that's like caused has been huge. You know, people just, just can't make a living out of farming anymore because mm-hmm. around where they live, the climate has changed too much for them to yeah. keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's only going to increase, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. But you are, am I right in thinking that there is um, there is a movement for limiting or help Scottish agriculture helping limit the global temperature rise to 1.5? Well, maybe not globally, I know. We're only a little island. We're only, we're only a, <laughs> you know what only I mean. No, absolutely. So, so what we've been doing and what I'm working on quite a lot just now is this joint piece of work with National Farmers Union for Scotland, which is saying if we're going to hit this 1.5 degree limit in Scotland that we're going to hit our net zero target in 2045 what's farming going to look like and what's farming going to contribute to that and the way the numbers work I mean you'll know this is that you know Scotland's a high livestock area and that's not you know because we're all meat eaters I mean a lot of the meat that we grow in Scotland we export somewhere else nearly all the land we export we don't eat it ourselves um, but yeah it's because our land suits grass growing you know most of our land isn't really plowable um, compared to many other countries you know it's hilly it's rocky it's wet you know and but it does a good job of growing grass a lot of it so it makes sense for us to be a high livestock country country from that point of view but what it means is that we get a bit hammered by the numbers so that livestock farming in scotland is about 20 percent of emissions whereas for the uk as a whole it's about 10 percent of emissions and it's even more if you go across the republic of ireland you know it's a really big chunk of emissions in in ireland or in New Zealand or other countries where livestock's a big part of what they do in their farming. So for countries like ours, that's the rules. You know, that's what we're trying to work towards is net zero in terms of production. So we have to do a lot of heavy lifting with agriculture because otherwise we're going to end up in a situation where we've been able to reduce everything else. And agriculture isn't 20% anymore, it's 50% of everything we do. You know, and yeah. we don't want to, nobody wants to be in that position because um, what the farmers union are saying is we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. You know, and they're really clear on that. But the question is, how do you get from here to there and still have farmers farming and making a living? And it's got to be a mixture of efficiency, technical efficiency. There's always things we could do better. So mm. you can actually lock up carbon and grow the animals. And we've it's very good for the soil as well, isn't it? Oh, it's and, uh... great for the soil. but And it's also wonderful for the animals. And we've got our sheep out, we've got our cattle out under the trees at the, at the moment, and they've got hedges to browse and they... They tuck their calves under the hedges and they just love that, you know, um, and they'll pick different trees at different times of year, depending on what they need in terms of their, their sort of yeah. multivitamins, you know, good they're really, really smart. Oh, lovely. Yeah, they love their back scratching. <laughs> and, but it's funny, we've got this huge cat moment waiting to carve and she keeps thinking that if she stands behind a tree, we can't see her. You know, and think, <laughs> just because just you've got your head behind the tree, you know, we can see both sides of you quite <laughs> So, yeah, they're, they're funny, but they love yeah. to put their, their calves in the hedge where you can't see them and you have to go around, you know, poking around the hedge to make sure the calves are right. So, yeah, anyway, right. so they're, um, so agroforestry, I think, is something we could do in Scotland at quite scale, you know, yeah. which locks up carbon, it's good for the soil, good for the animals. It's really good for like flood prevention, you know, if you have like mm. little belts of trees and hedges, they stop the water, you know, running down the hill. Into, that's a know, lot of the problem in down in England as well I think with all the bad yeah. floods they've been having because they've yeah. got rid of everything 
Yeah. And yeah, overgrazed the land. Mm. It's just a flat field. And especially with maize, um, if you don't under-sow it, then you've got a lot of bare soil in the winter, which is not a great mm-hmm. idea. But we could do a lot with um, with organics and with, you know, the good thing about organics, or one of the good things is you're reducing your nitrogen use. And nitrogen's a big issue, you know. It's like we, we waste half the nitrogen we use. You know, either goes into water, it goes into the air. And that's because if you put too much nitrogen on, the plants can't take it up. You know, if you put it on when it's cold or, you know, or even if you haven't got plant grow big enough at that point, you know, the plants just can't use it. So it has to go somewhere. So it goes up into the air, it goes down into water. Um, so being more efficient with nitrogen would be good. And organics doesn't put any artificial nitrogen on. So it just uses whatever, you know, clover or dung or whatever. To, so the nitrogen is just going around the circle rather than um, putting new stuff on. So you can definitely do some stuff with, with those things. Um, and then there's sort of new technologies coming in all the time to, you know, should we be, you know, making biochar and putting that on the soil because that locks up carbon long term, you know, and it's good for a lot of soils. It helps with hold moisture and generally trying to get more carbon into soil is a good idea because, you know, a good chunk of the, the extra CO2 that's in the atmosphere just now, maybe between a third and a quarter of that came from the soil, you know, so it's not just the oil, it's also the soil. And we've, We've turned a lot of our soil into, into CO2. And we need to get some of that CO2 back into soil. So, you know, there are lots of things we can do in farming to really reduce our, our footprint. And, um, and the more we can do that with farming, yeah. it's not only good for the planet. Generally, it's good for farmers because a lot of those things help you farm better. They actually help you reduce your costs or make more money or both. It's hard to get change because most farms are really small yeah. businesses. So they're like one or two people, most of them, and they don't have a lot of spare cash to invest. They know how to do what they're doing now, but they might not know how to do something different. And you don't have a, you know, a head of training and a head of HR and a head of investment policy and a, you know, you're just yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When you see farming, it's very, vi- it's very visible. People drive past our farm and they can see what you're doing. And, and uh-huh. if you're a farmer, you can go, Oh, he's put that into oats this year. Big mistake, big mistake. You know? <laughs> There's some very judgy farmers. <laughs> well, we're all a bit judgy, aren't we? Do you know what I mean? And I think, I think it, but it's that thing about what you do is pretty visible, you know? Um, mm, yeah. I guess so. it's the same as judging what each other are eating and, and things like that. Yeah. 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 It sounds absolutely. like a fascinating world. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just still so excited about the story of the cow, you know, hiding behind the tree. I, you know, maybe they should have sent us all out to the farms and locked down where we were stuck out in the house and do anything to get back to, back to nature, you know. It's wonderful. You, yeah. you do do things like that on the farm, don't you, Pete? You have, or do you try and get people involved well, with we, that? Or? We did. I mean, we couldn't really. Well, obviously, that was the no. thing, do you know what I mean? We had to say, well, you can't really, you know, you, you can't really come can't anymore. come to farm, you know. You can't say it's an essential journey to come walk the cows, you know, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. so. but under I think, I think it could be great for your mental health. I really do, you know. But yeah. I, I think it's fascinating that you know the farming community is obviously going through this process that other industries are as well. You know, you see the mm. same thing happening in financial services, and it starts off with an awareness of the problems, and then you get kind of a willingness to do something, and then you see people gradually this bit can be quite tricky but actually agreeing to collaborate and support rather than Mm. seeing each other as rivals and competitors and and then the the really hard bit comes with having to make 
the difficult change, the out, you know, be the first one to make the change or to, you know, maybe do something that's going to be difficult time-wise or, or yeah. going to cost your profit margin or something like that. And I guess that's where that extra encouragement and that extra push needs to needs mm. to come uh, in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we and and there are some, you know, some very clear things government can do to help with some of that, you know. I'm saying, well, what are we going to, certainly improving advice services, but, you know, there are grants and loans that can be done to help farmers move from one system to another system. So, you know, if you want to do agroforestry, for example, at some point you have to, you know, stick trees in the field and you can't stick them in the field while they're growing because the cows are going to eat them or the sheep are going to eat them. Mm -hmm. you know? So you either have to put protectors around them or you have to keep the cows out of the field for 10 years or you have to, you know, my, my favourite solution is, we put all these smart collars on the cows that you've got now, just make a bit of a, a noise when they go near the trees. So they go, well, I'm not going to go there anymore. You know, so you can actually <laughs> do that with, with GPS, you know, a bit like those, those things they, you know, you use with dogs, but, but you can have a non-aversive way of getting the cows to not eat your trees. I think that would be ideal. So, yeah, um, but, but you need, all I'm saying is you need some system to get from uh -huh. where I am now, big fields with no trees in them to where I need to be big fields with trees in them, you know, and, you yeah. can't do that by just sticking the cows in the field every year. You know, you're going to have to do something sure. um, to get that change to happen. And that's going to cost money, you know. So. I guess it's great as well having organisations like Norwich to, to do all the research and, and liaise with the government and really try and push that forwards. I mean, running a farm and doing that, um, I'm amazed you've got time to, to talk yeah. to us this morning. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> but we're, we're just like, um, we're, we're just totally sort of, rely on other people so we have on the panel the fine 1.5 panel we have these amazing scientists who are on the panel scotland has in this field i mean uh, this isn't exactly mm -hmm. this is a, we a we scotland thing but we do actually have some of the best institutes on agriculture and soil science in the world i mean there's no doubt about that for a small country we are really really good at this mm -hmm. and as well as the people on the panel we've had these presentations where people have come in you know and who are doing really cutting edge stuff, real global leadership. And then they've been able to explain to us, who are not all scientists on the panel, in simple language, this is what we're doing. This is what the future, you know, this is where we could go with this. So we've been, and we've been really lucky, but yeah, we've been able to learn from all these people. It's exciting. And I think that's why we're yeah. so excited to hopefully all going well host COP26 this year as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's going to be good. No, it's, it's really great. I mean, we've been... I guess we've always thought we'd need to get somebody to talk about the food and the food system on the podcast ever since we started it. And this is, you know, the first time that we've got around to it, but it is just such a fascinating story and it does affect absolutely all of us. Um, I mean, yeah. one, one point I'd like to make, Pete, and I don't know how much you have to say about this, but I, I come from the perspective of food through my experience as a parent. I mean, my children are all grown now, but I had three of them and they all had very different relationships with food. You know, I've got a vegan, a vegetarian, um, a, 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 a carnivore who won't touch vegetables. And has, I've never, never <laughs> you know, and it's been a challenge. It's been a real challenge over the years. And there's been all these external pressures as well. You know, you always try to feed your children as healthily as you can and then you get their resistance and then you get resistance from you know maybe their pals are all taking unhealthy snacks in and, and if, if they're the only ones who've got a banana they're going to get laughed at or, or whatever it might be you know do you think that that schools need to do more or I mean it's, it's maybe improved because my kids are in their 20s now so maybe it's got a lot better than it was when they were 
Yes, and do you want to, before we finish, do you want to hear anything about the COP26 stuff or should we come back to yes, that in a minute? Or, yeah, yeah, definitely. But, but on, yeah. The, on the schools thing, absolutely. I think um, there is some, again, some really good stuff that happened in Scotland. We've been working with some of the local authorities because of universal free school meals coming in next year, which, by the way, is, is brilliant. But to sort of say, look, can we use this opportunity to really raise our game on school food? Some of that is some of that's about money. You know, we can't, you know, you can't make brilliant food for kids if if you've got a very, very tight budget for ingredients, you end up going for the sort of you know cheapest possible ingredients. And and some of it's just about the whole making sure that food's built into the whole way that we do things at school, you know, so it becomes something we think about in terms of the curriculum, but also in terms of the sitting down at, you know, experience and how the catering staff get to interact with and be valued by the kids and the teachers and all that. I've really seen the catering staff as part of the team, not just the people who put food on the plates, you know? So all of that, I think mm -hmm. is there's some really interesting stuff going on, you know, whether more schools can, you know, provide healthy takeaways at the school gate for people because they've got the kitchens, they've got, sometimes they've got mm -hmm. leftovers they can work with, you know, there's lots of potential you can do to really make the schools part of that sort of, changing the way we do food but I, I don't have kids I have two very well-fed cats but I just you know so many of those food memories are linked to your childhood and I think you know they're such formative years I'd imagine that, that what you're taught and what you eat and what you learn about food at that age must be must be so important for how you, how you go forwards Definitely. I think it does stick with you the the Scandinavians are doing some I mean they've had a, a plan a bit like ours for 20 years now trying to influence diet um and they've had some huge changes in diet in the Nordic countries because of that. But they do a lot of work with early years staff to teach them about how kids' palates develop and how, because it's quite a sort of, there's different stages that are quite distinct in the way that your taste buds develop and how to plan introducing kids to new foods so that they really take account of the science of, of taste. So yeah, you've got to do all those things. I mean, that's the whole point about <laughs> if you want to change food, you. There's not one thing you need to do. You no, need to do like 20 things and you need to do them all at once, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's not just children. I'll just, um, we were talking about fussy eating the other day. My husband, when I met him, he was fried chicken, pizza. Those are his favorite <laughs> things. And that pretty much continued through to his adult life. And he was telling a colleague the other day um, in front of me, it was when uh, we went to visit my family in France and they took us to this nice restaurant that had a Michelin star and they gave you the menu and it was just a page of a list of ingredients. And they said, this is what we're cooking with today. If there's anything you're allergic to or you really don't like, you can pick up to four ingredients that we won't put on your plate. But other than that, you don't know what the menu is. You don't get to choose what you eat. And my husband was panicking, thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? There's so much strange stuff on here. I don't want to eat any of this. And I said, just relax. It'll be OK because they're going to cook it and it'll be amazing. And it'll be fantastic ingredients and you're going to love it. And he did. And it's totally changed his, really? his view on so. food. And that, that's why he's now, he loves cooking. He, he loves exploring with food. And But it's a great story, isn't it? And it's, a, it's also a great story about food waste. You know? mm. Yeah. Because, yeah. because we, 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 you know, we've ended up in this position where restaurants think they need to put lots and lots of different choices on, which means either you get a lot of food waste because you're trying to do too many prep at once and, you, you know, or more commonly you just buy microwavable things that have really long recipe names on them you could spot on the restaurant menu if that's actually a sort of 
a wholesale thing that you can get you put in the microwave you know if it says drizzled <laughs> basically i think if it says drizzled you probably you should avoid it you know <laughs> Good so, yeah, tips. But, yeah you know but but that idea about just saying we've got these ingredients and we'll cook you something with them is brilliant and yeah? um, before we finish up we need to talk about cop 26 which will be hosted in glasgow in november Pete, can you tell us what nourisher planning and why is it so important to represent food and food systems at the COP? Food hasn't been really on the agenda at climate COPs, um, and it hasn't really been on the agenda at biodiversity COPs either, but that's another story. But it's not been high up the agenda. Agriculture gets a mention in the COP, but it's quite divorced from the rest of the conversation. So COPs have tended to concentrate on you know, finance, obviously, and transfers to, to least developed countries, and then things like, you know, energy transport, you know, what are seen as the big ticket items. But as we know, food, if you add it up, account for about 30% of global emissions. Mm-hmm. So there is absolutely no way you can get to Paris without doing food. But in a way, people don't really want to talk about that at this COP. So the UK government's negotiating priorities don't include food. We've written to them yeah, to say you should right. include food. But they've taken this thing about nature-based solutions. That's been their focus is to say, mm. we're going to do nature-based solutions. And that's one of these phrases that could turn out well, could turn out not so well, because it all depends how we go about doing it. Even in Scotland, if we think that, you know, taking a sheep farm and turning it into a Sitka spruce plantation is a nature-based solution, then that's a problem. Mm. You know, that would probably reduce biodiversity. It probably doesn't increase employment. You know, it's not even clear that over the long term it, it increases carbon all that much, you know. So we do have a real question about what ends up counting as nature-based solutions. So that's a sort of by the by. But that's where the that's where the focus has been. And we're trying, you know, in our very small way to shift some of the focus onto food at the COP to say we, we need to talk about food. And the particular way we've gone into that conversation, because we're a small organization, is mm-hmm. to focus on the role of cities and in the jargon subnational actors so subnational governments in that terminology scotland is a subnational government mm-hmm. we don't have a seat at the table at the un in scotland any more than you know california has a seat at the table or bavaria or um, tokyo you know or johannesburg those those organizations don't have a seat at the table but what they do about food really matters so most of the more innovative policies around food around the world have been developed by cities. Copenhagen's a really good example of that. They decided nearly 20 years ago that they were going to go to 100% organic food in their schools and their public kitchens. They're at 90-something percent. Copenhagen's change drove the whole development of the Danish organic sector, and that's been instrumental in, in driving development of the European organic sector, which the European Commission came out a couple of months ago and said they want to increase land in organics to 25% in Europe. You know, now I'm not saying that it was only Copenhagen that did that, but Copenhagen's leadership on that made a big difference. In Brazil, mm-hmm. Belo Horizonte's leadership on zero hunger and saying we're going to organize our food system to reduce food poverty in, in, in our city had a huge impact on the then Brazilian government to introduce zero hunger across Brazil. It's been rolled back, obviously, with the changes in Brazil, but it was a huge, you know, thing that, that came from a city base. And if you look around the world now, 
a lot of the most innovative stuff is happening at city level. And even mm-hmm. just recently this week, Glasgow, you know, launched its own city food plan, which has got loads of good stuff in there and is really trying to move things on in Glasgow. So what we're saying is that the Glasgow Declaration that we've developed with working with partners around the world is getting cities to sign up to integrated food policies to tackle climate change. And it's calling on national governments to do the same, to say, we need an integrated food policy to tackle climate change. It's not good enough just to pick on health or just to pick on food poverty or just to pick on pesticides or just to pick on animal welfare. You've got to, you've got to look at the whole thing um, mm. and have a food policy that, that really does go from you know, farm to fork or, as we like to say, from fork to farm. Because it's what we eat that drives the food system rather than the other way around. So we need a, an integrated food policy for climate change. Mm. So we've been working with partners on this declaration. It's, it's written in, in sort of UN language in a sense, but it basically says we're going to try and do the right thing on food to tackle climate change. And we've got signatures from all over the world and we're going to be having events at, at COP um, to both to launch that declaration, but also to talk about some of the issues that we need to, we need mm. to tackle. So that's one thing we're doing. And the other thing we're doing, which is sort of connected, but a wee bit different is we're having a, a dialogue between cities and farmers. You know, farmers are at one end of the supply chain. You know, they have to, you know, actually go out there and produce the food. And at the other end are the cities that actually eat the food. So cities eat 70% of the food in the world. What cities eat determines what farmers produce. Of course. But those two constituencies aren't really joined together very well, which is why in COVID we saw, not just in Scotland, but around the world, people going, uh, why can't we buy any food from around here? You know, I can see the fields in my house. I just can't eat anything from those fields, you know, because that's not the way the food system mm-hmm. operates at the moment. So it's partly about relocalizing some of that food system, not relocalizing it all so we just all have to live off turnips all winter, but actually <laughs> saying, you know, we, if we had a, a stronger and more resilient local food system, that's good for jobs. It could be very good for health. It could be good for the economy. It could be good for the planet. You know, it's probably good for society. You know, so a better balance between the local and the global stuff. But it's also about, you know, when when cities buy public food to put in their school, you know, school meals, they can really do the right thing. They can send the right message to farmers about we do want this and we don't want that. And that can help farmers, you know, go to the banks and say they do want this and they don't want that. So we need some money to, to change what we do. So there's lots of things cities can do. Some of them in different parts of the world have got you know, control over land policy, particularly, you know, not so much in Scotland at the moment, although that is changing, but cities and local authorities can say, this land is owned for this. We're going to keep this land for young farmers to have because we don't really need the next farmer next door to get any bigger, but we do need a young farmer to come in here and do something new. So there's lots of things that, that cities can actually do to influence the food system and connect with farmers. So we've got this dialogue coming up at COP between cities of different sizes and shapes and farmers of different sizes and shapes from different parts of the world. We're hoping to have a couple of hundred people in the room or if worst comes to worst on Zoom to talk about this. But in planning for that, we've been having local dialogues in different parts of the world from Southwest Scotland, talking about how we you know, strengthen the local food economy around here. How do we balance farming and forestry? You know, they're talking about that. And in, in Papua, they're talking about how do we stop how do we preserve the work we're doing with the rainforest and try and keep sustainable agriculture going here? 
in the face of a lot of pressure from palm oil to, mm-hmm. as it were, make more money out of the land in the short term. Yeah. And, and a group in Mexico looking at how do we keep this indigenous methods of production going and find new markets for it. And in Johannesburg, you know, how do we get more protein produced within Johannesburg? So lots of different conversations going on in different parts of the world that we're sort of going to bring to the COP. There's so much ground to cover. I think I think we need yeah. a whole series of, of the podcast just on those issues, to be honest, <laughs> trying to cover them all in one in one short um, show. It's just not possible, but it's, it's absolutely inspirational and it's so important. And if there's anything that we can do to spread the message, you know, um, I, go, I go to quite a few kind of seminars and kind of, you can always pose questions to the speakers. So if you want to send me a food-related tricky question to send everybody I'll, I'll i'll get that out there as much as i can you know? i mean the good news i think investment in in kind of sustainable food production is is growing i think we've got a, well just maybe just one fund in our responsible futures portfolio yeah, there's a thematic fund which is based on kind of ag- the agricultural system and kind of sustainable ways of farming and things like that so it's the yeah, it's kind of tractor it's technology and, it's, it's yeah. growing you know the interest is definitely growing in that yeah. kind of thing so I think I think that is and it's a challenge to get um you know obviously a lot of hot money at the moment in you know alternatives to meat all the plant-based mm, vegan type yeah. foods you know a lot of hot money in there at the moment mm. and you know it's definitely good for people to reduce their meat consumption there is a bit of a question sometimes about whether we're producing ultra processed vegan ready meals you know rather than people mm-hmm. eating veg yeah um, so just the same problem in a different well a, a, something which is in a way still locking us into a sort of long food chains factory produced food model which sometimes isn't actually very great for our health, you know. Certainly, I mean, the, the stats were that in Veganuary last year, veg sale didn't go up, you know. <laughs> so, so vegan and vegetables don't necessarily go together. And it's, it's a, you know, vegan's good for not eating meat, but what you do eat also matters for your health, you know. Mm-hmm. So vegetables, yeah. you know, and vegetables and fruit are good for you ignoring yeah. <laughs> ignoring it and going for the fancy packaging or the good marketing or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah and the devil does always have the best tunes you know we've got to remember yeah that. yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> well if only we anyway. could put the world to right in, in this room with the time we have but yeah it's a long journey ahead but it sounds like the work that you're doing is is incredible pete so we really do wish you every success at cop 26 i've cool. applied to volunteer so if i'm successful oh, i'll make sure i send everybody to your tent make sure. your, well, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah we're hoping hoping to get some space in the green zone if it, if it comes off so every week we like to find out a little bit more about our guests by asking them what they would like to reduce reuse and recycle from serious problems on a global scale to little personal niggles, we ask them to pick out three things they want to see less of, more of, or change. Okay, Pete, so first of all, could you tell us what you would reduce, please? So, yeah, so on the farm, there's at least three things that do my head about recycling. So, the, the f- actually, four. Yeah, <laughs> okay, we can three. have four hours. I'll stick to three. No, no. Um, so, the first one is silage plastic, right? I don't know if you know, but um, when you make silage, because you can make hay here, but it's a bit of a risky thing. You know, we're thinking of making hay this week and then we got a shower and the hay would have been ruined. So we just made silage. So you wrap it up in net and then you wrap it up in plastic. 
Yeah. Right. And then when we give the plastic the size, the cows, we take the plastic off, we put it in a big tote bag and then it goes away to get recycled. We have to pay to get recycled. But I really haven't understood yet why we can't make a plastic the cows just eat. Yeah. You know, wow. and like okay. you spray something, you spray something on it so that it starts degrading and then you give it to cows and they eat it. You know, I mean, if it was a cornstarch plastic. So somebody needs to make a cornstarch plastic mm-hmm. strong enough to wrap silage in and then the cows could just mm-hmm. eat it. We wouldn't have all this carry on about making the plastic and then recycling it. And I mean, you can recycle it into things like park benches, but it's a long way for a shortcut. No, that's really interesting. You know, you get those little packaging peanuts that come in in parcels when you order things online, Um, like little foamy packaging peanuts. They're made out of cornstarch as well. My kitten loves those. We have to lock them away. We've been saving them for packing for for our move. And there's nuts over them. So we have to lock them away in a cupboard and he'll be scratching. He he just, he loves eating them because they kind of dissolve in water or in his mouth and he just thinks they're the greatest thing i'm not sure it's very healthy for him which is why we don't let him but yeah something like that that's a fantastic idea yeah number one (laughs) then i got then i got a packaging thing where you know so um we get if we're buying things like meat or cheese or something like that for the farm shop you know it has to come chilled so what do you put it in and and then the fish as well. So the fish man's great because he gives us polystyrene, but he picks it up when he drops the fish off, which is great. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. He recycles his polystyrene. But and then we've got some other people who send us these things that are like cardboard with wool inside them. And then the wool inserts are great because they go to the garden center because they can give them to people for their like hanging baskets and stuff like that. So, you know, no harm done, you know. But there's one supplier who insists on sending us stuff in polystyrene boxes, but it comes to a courier. So they don't pick them up. And I just have no idea how to stop them doing that, except stopping getting their stuff. But we need what they get because what they supply, we can't get them anywhere else. So we're in this really stuck thing that we stop giving our customers what they want because we can't get the supplier to stop putting it in polystyrene boxes. You know, so that is a really annoying thing because there's nothing you can do with polystyrene. It's just like, you know, you can you can grow some seeds in it, but like the number of boxes you end up getting, you know, you'd, you'd be growing for Britain to get enough <laughs> seeds in that. <laughs> And then the third thing is pallets, right? We have so many pallets on the farm now because, again, people drop them off. They don't pick them up. And so you've got this sort of a whole, pretty much a whole shed that's full of pallets. And you think, okay, well, what are you supposed to do? For that. I've got a hairdresser who, she may not be great at doing my hair, but she is actually a really happy <laughs> I hope she person. doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she, every time I go to the hairdresser, she tells me about the DIY stuff she's doing in the garden and she's decking her whole garden with pallets. So... Well, you know, if we I can mean, get her, her her decking technique to go viral, then we can get all your pallets taken that'd away. That would be great. I could deck half, <laughs> half of Edinburgh with the pallets we've got on the farm. That would be great. Perfect. There's Good. a solution for these things. <laughs> well, that was brilliant. That's um great little insight to farm life there. So um, fantastic. Yeah, Thank and you And I very think much. it really sums up the whole issue of everybody trying to do their best with recycling, but sometimes it just doesn't work. And, you know, yeah. how, how can we all bring our voices together to influence the suppliers and the producers to to just do what the consumer wants at the end of the day and everybody work together on it you know definitely definitely well it's good to see a good see as to have expanded their sort of you know go and refill your container thing i mean i just yeah i hope it works i mean i think you know it does mean people changing what they do when they go shopping doesn't it but i mean I mean, it worked with plastic bags, I guess. So, I mean, I guess it mm-hmm. can work with that yeah. too. But, I mean, um, we are adaptable. We do get used to yeah. things eventually. It's just yeah. maybe being forced to make that change. 
Yeah. Well, we all ended up wearing masks pretty quick, didn't we? I mean, that's been a weird thing. I think you suddenly, mm-hmm. just a new, a new thing you just do. So, yeah. We would like to thank Pete very much for joining us today from the farm. Uh, he's obviously very busy uh, with all his work, both on the farm and with Nourish Scotland. For anyone who doesn't know, we've been talking about COP26. That's the United Nations Climate Conference that's coming to Glasgow in November this year and is going to be a really crucial event. As well as government uh, representatives from countries all over the world, there will be a green zone for the public to see all sorts of presentations and events. This takes place in and around the Science Centre. If you'd like to find out about Nourish Scotland and their research, you can have a look at their website, which is at www.nourishscotland.org. And if you fancy some tasty organic food in the Edinburgh area, you can order from www.witmuir.scot. And if you'd like to hear more about the businesses that Cornerstone's Responsible Futures portfolios invest in, then feel free to email us at podcast at cornerstoneam.co.uk. The portfolios are linked to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and invest in companies that aim to make the world a cleaner, greener, fairer place for everyone. We're so enthusiastic about all things related to sustainability, so please feel free to share anything that you might think would be of interest to us. We're also happy to put you on the right track with any queries you might have relating to your finances, because we love helping both people and planet. None of the content of this podcast is intended to be a recommendation for investment. If you invest in any form of asset-backed investment, values will go down as well as up, and you may not get back the full amount invested. The Forward Thinking Podcast was hosted by Ellie and Rebecca and sponsored by Cornerstone Asset Management, an award-winning Scottish financial planning firm who have created the Responsible Futures Sustainable Investment Portfolios. You can find the podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we will be posting details of future episodes and guests. Just type in 4 Podcast, F-O-U-R-W-O-R-D podcast. And the first issue of the Forward Thinking newsletter is coming Friday the 13th of November. Featuring articles written by the team and behind-the-scenes information on the podcast, keep your eyes peeled on our social media channels to find out where to sign up.